Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about the human mind. I'm joined by Robert Newman, who will be known to many of you as a stand-up comic, but has written a book about brain science called Neuropolis, a brain science survival guide. Now, welcome, Rob. Thank you for having me. Nice um, to be here. You know, to start to try and get a sense of your book, you know, we know we're living through this sort of golden age, apparently, of neuroscience. You know, there are endless new books coming that say that, you know, you can identify which part of the brain does what through fMRI. We've got Elon Musk conjecturing that we're all going to be uploaded into the cloud at some relatively near future point. And your book, to borrow a technical term from neuroscience, thinks this is all bollocks. <laughs> is, that, is that a fair representation of your position? I think there are a lot of grandiose and extravagant claims being made about about the, about the brain. And what led me to write the book is that the, a lot of these are very pessimistic, very dehumanising, and many of the headline claims derive not, I believe, from neuroscience, but from philosophical stowaways, and they're the return of very old ideas. And actually, all the time that we're getting this sort of reductive dogma some really fascinating bits of neuroscience it kind of escape escape attention so in that among the sort of the leading inter, internationally best-selling books on the brain you can learn that you know we live in a colorless odorless tasteless silent world where That's smiling <laughs> i know and, and, and then people just it's you know and it and of course it's straight from bishop barclay and and but but it's sort of seen as a, this is the cutting edge of sort of science and, and science is saying no such thing and of course such a such a view i argue is totally incompatible with natural selection because in a colourless world there's no way to account for the survival of the chameleon there's no way to account for there's no way for an orchid to attract a pollinator all those things but because of this insistence partly I think on the on this on the dower the macho the sort of the cold flinching reality we, we're sort of we, we're told that if you don't if you don't accept this then somehow perhaps you're harbouring a secret religiosity perhaps you just don't have the the manliness to look at the cold hard truth you know squarely in the, in, in the face perhaps you're you're anti-science perhaps so it's fun it's fun debunking those things because i think it, it, we're under attack i mean these things are uh, de- uh, sort of very dehumanizing to tell people that smiling evolved from an aborted snarl to say that which is vs ramachandran says that in phantoms in the brain and he has no evidence for that according to your book None, none that I know. I mean, well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think so. And of course, it flies. You know, in Darwin, who did rather a lot of work into the evolutionary origins of smiling, and particularly in the expression of the emotions of man and animal, came to radically different conclusions, um, which is that it's a sort of an echo of laughter rather than an echo of of snarling. But I think the temper of the times likes these very um, dour, mechanistic, gloomy, kind of. gloomy, and mechanistic ones too. Yes, yes. Can I ask how you? came to this i mean is it something that you were just sort of interested in or is it because there's quite i mean your book has this sort of quality of reading like three quarters like a quite learned scientific piece and one quarter like a stand-up routine yes. um did you just become interested in this do you have a sort of scientific background i mean are you one of those people who was trained up as a neuroscientist and then went off to cambridge and joined the footlights <laughs> no no i didn't have a career I, neither of those other things is, uh, are true partly it follows on from my last book, The Entirely Accurate Encyclopedia of Evolution, which was looking at similarly dehumanising and unwantedly pessimistic ideas about what sort of creatures humans are, which I, I again, I felt had, did not derive from science, but from philosophy. My interest is, in, is coming from philosophy, I think, particularly philosophy of science. And again, I, I have no more of a philosophical background than I have a scientific background, but I really love... Uh, philosophers like Mary Mitchell, or writers like Marilyn Robinson, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, who her non-fiction is just great. And there's a great book she did on absence of 
of mind. And then the philosopher and neuroscientist Ray Tallis, written good, Peter Medawar, and, and Stephen Jay Gould. That's the other thing, is that a generation ago, I feel like, if you think of someone like Stephen Jay Gould or Peter Medawar, science writers were very broad and very humane and warm and, and curious. And now the, the tone seems to be narrow and, and prescriptive, and we're being dunned on this sort of dogma that, you know, that, and, and a lot of breast beating as well, in a, you know, and... Um, yes, you do start... <laughs> You start by introducing a character called Dick Swab, who yeah, unfortunately yes, yes. say he's got a grudge against humanity on account, on account of being called Dick Swab. Yeah, he's, he wrote "We Are Our Brains" and um, international bestseller, one of the many brain books you know sagging the bookshelves in your local bookstore. And he says in this that Japanese people and New Guineans struggle to tell the difference between fear and surprise, which are, which is again, if you're going to swing a a sledgehammer against one of the mainstays of evolutionary biology, which is that all people everywhere pretty much experience the same things in the same way, then you better come along with some evidence. And his book has no footnotes and cites no evidence and has no and there's no bibliography. There's no, I, I, it's very difficult to know where that idea comes from. So why do you think these ideas are so attractive to people? I, I don't know. I, well, I think I sort of talk about how... Um, I think I, I sort of blame Freud in the book for helping along the, the sort of the nihilistic turn in science writing um, in the general introduction to psychoanalysis he as far as I know I'm, I'm sure I'm probably wrong on this but that he was the first to advance the idea that all the great scientific breakthroughs are, are a hammer blow to, the, to what he calls humanity's naive self-love I mean other people have pointed out that different ones of them were but, but you know he says Evolution comes along and shows that we're made not in the image of God but orangutan. Heliocentrism takes us from the centre of the of the universe to a remote speck. And his own invention of psychoanalysis, which he modestly lists as one of the three great scientific revolutions of all time, shows that we're you know we're not the rational creatures we think we are, but driven by. And and I think this has been very influential, uh, despite the fact I think he's wrong in every in every single way. But and I, and I sort of look at how sort of contemporary 17th century people looked at heliocentrism, in fact, as a liberating theology. But I think that science writers think, if I can make everyone feel really rotten about themselves, I'll be hailed as a great scientist. And so the race is on. Who can say the most devastating thing about the rest of us? And so Stephen Hawking says you know, that the human race is just a chemical scum on the face of a moderate-sized planet orbiting a very average star in the, you know... It was funny when Douglas Adams said it, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> One kind of thing that does seem to come through in your book is that a lot of old ideas, like the, you know, Bishop Berkeley scepticism about, 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 uh, about the outside world, yes. like the idea of the mind-body divide, like, I mean, you talk about phrenology coming back in, the sort of... Yes. Science that, that what we're seeing is kind of old templates of ideas suddenly snuck into modern science yes there's um i look at the indeed to a, a paper called the neurobiology of wisdom that i first learned about through ray tellis's book and uh they're they're talking about how they can and they talk about wisdom as if it's a, a sort of property you could isolate as if it was the chemical compound you have when you boiled away silliness and um <laughs> and it struck mind me there's the, the the great american poet benny collins writes this wonderful poem called the death of allegory where he wonders what happens to all those sort of metaphysical concepts that were personified in 18th century statuary and in medieval woodcuts and, you know, constancy, alert, behind a helm and reason and courage or on a horse. And, it, and, it, and there's a very sweet thing in the poem. He, he imagines them having retired to what he calls a Florida for tropes. And, but it seems to me that neuroscience has taken them out of retirement and given them postal districts in the brain. And it, this is the place, you know, in the right temporal sulcus, 
here's where you will find guilt and that's where schadenfreude lives and that's where pride and it seems to me that Hieronymus Bosch and John Bunyan they didn't believe unlike modern brain mappers that, that, that these things were that you could meet the Valley of Humiliation was an actual place, or that John, or yeah. before John Bunyan got a job at so Sports Direct. So it got backwards. They, they yeah. knew that allegory yeah, was they, allegory. Exactly. They never yeah. confused the, the, you know, the, the parable with the, with the view from the window. But now it seems people do believe that you could meet a, a concept in flesh and blood, albeit microscopic flesh and blood, which seems to me remarkable, and remarkable to be wearing the clothes of science. You know. But there is some, I mean, you know, there seems to be some sort of evidence, isn't there, for the idea that different areas of the brain do different things? Of course, yes, yeah. of course. I, and I, I do believe in cortical localization, and that's true, but they, they don't do it in, entirely on their own. And whenever, so if you look at, say, something like the fusiform, what's, what's called the fusiform face area, it was thought to be, in, and it clearly is involved in, in, in recognizing faces and determining the nature of an expression but then it was more recent work has, has discovered that it's a slightly more nuanced picture it seems to be where fine discriminations are made you know where the, where an apple expert tells the difference between a belder books or a worcester pear mate it's fine it's all fine descriptions and you could see of course the the finest discriminations that you might need to make would be about the human face those subtle gradations of of pleasure or of, um, fear and surprise. Know, or fear and surprise, or yes, uh, listeners to the podcast will know. I'm just noticing how Sam's eyes are very subtly glazing over in <laughs> this, and this un- unwieldy answer to a pithy question. And so I, I do believe in cortical localization, but, but, but um, we know very little about the brain. That's the other reason when you say where these ideas come from. We've got so used to solving, to, to speaking in block capitals and to, so, and to knowing everything, and that we suspect not knowing as being deliberate obfuscation. But we know so so little about. We just it's 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 huge. I got quite annoyed. There's something on the BBC website that said scientists are close to solving the last um, the last secrets of the brain. We don't know the first thing about the brain. I think. Do you know what I mean? I just think. And I and when I love science and scientists the most is when it's that you know you feel like the you always feel like someone really knows their field if they admit to bafflement, you know, cheerfully, and how little they know. Yes, you're talking about curiosity as an yeah. attractive quality. Yeah. I mean, one of the, I think, very telling anecdotes in the book is is the story of Phineas Gage, which is where a lot of this kind of begins. And the story is not apparently as told. I mean, can you talk a bit about Phineas Gage and what what they thought his story meant and what it may not have? Yeah, I, 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 su- I suppose most listeners will know of the, already of the Phineas Gage story. He's the uh, US railroad worker in Vermont in 1848 and um, he's tamping a explosive charge into a granite rock face to blast a cutting for the Green Mountain Railways and um, sparks from his tamping iron it sort of ignite the explosive and it drives this 13 pound iron bar through through his skull and out the other side removing what we would now call the prefrontal cortex. Now the story that we're always told is is a sort of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde story that is that he then becomes a raving wild man having been very sober beforehand, and, and that, then that he, he, he's given to what visiting Harvard physicians call the use of grossest profanity. And textbooks always conclude cheerily, well, that's how we know that the prefrontal cortex is in charge with mediating appropriate social behaviour. In her essay, Absence of Mind, Marilyn Robertson says, well, why should swearing be sign uh, a sign that the beast within has escaped as far what could be more human than that she says as far as we know we're the only species that that that, that do it and you know it turned out that there's there's a lovely book by someone called Malcolm McMillan called An Odd Kind of Fame Stories of Finnish Gage where he actually went into the historical record and and because he thought blimey everyone tells this story but 
nobody knows anything about him. And it, so even though V.S. Ramachandran in Fancy of the Brain describes Phineas Gage as a worthless vagabond with absolutely no moral sense, it turns out that for the remaining 13 years of his life, you know, he, he was helping out on the family, small holding. His mother said there wasn't much dif difference in his behaviour, um, except his memory was, was, sh was shot, that he was travelling 60 miles to find another job in a, in a nearby town. Uh, yeah, and um, sure, yeah. <laughs> so, um, twice shy. so yeah, yeah. Well, I and he was trying to get a job as a blasting foreman, and I and I sort of say in the book, do we so hoping to impress his employers more with his his, his experience and his know-how? Then again, it's moot whether we listen more carefully to the one-armed or the two-armed bomb disposal expert. <laughs> and um, but the thing is, it, it's that can't he can't why can't he sh as 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 again and, and this is a great thing for a 70 year old calvinist uh, as marilyn Monroe robson robinson calls herself she says a very nice line about with a long and quiet life behind me i find the only way i can shock people is by telling them I, oh, i'm a calvinist <laughs> uh, but she says why can't he rant and rave for the same reasons the rest of us do do you know what i mean i mean he, he, i mean he's got it's got yeah, a very good reason i'm just you know and, and if a man can't head, yeah. can't swear then when can you swear you know, and uh, if after that had happened, if he then turned around and went, cool, blimey, you'd know he was seriously brain damaged. And why can't it be, yeah, not just because, he's, because of his, his brain has been shattered, but because of how he feels about his brain having been shattered? Why, can't, why isn't he allowed to, to... Well, is that the thing that goes through the book, that very often people seem to be trying to take away human agency? Yes. You know, by saying we're the sort of victims of this and that. And it seems to me your book does have, it seems to me, quite a, a political dimension. I mean, quite a lot of the time, what you're saying is, look, by abolishing, you know, ideas of communitarian experience, of people, you know, actually liking to be in crowds, of people, you know, all this this sort of side of things, you're in some ways kind of robbing them of agency. I think that's true, particularly true, uh, uh, and is in the Stephen Pinker's book, How the Mind Works, he says that, and he, he's a great believer in the sort of the, what I call the myth of the Stone Age brain, that our brains were sort of made in the Pleistocene Epoch, and that modern life is a terrible wrench so he says something like um, our brains are not wired to cope that's his phrase with anonymous crowds written language modern medicine schooling and, and I think well in what sense for goodness sake do we struggle to cope with you know signposts and, and menus and, and things and I, and I argue that it, this when he's actually talking about the East African savannah, it's actually talking about the Wild West. It's nostalgia for because all these are all just a list of things that cowboys can't be dealing with. Because if it wasn't that, then he'd list all post Pleistocene newcomers to human experience, including horse riding or wearing trousers. But no one would ever say that our brains are not wired to cope with trousers. But I just think this is Mrs. Gummidge's idea of the world that we're, we're lone, lone creatures and we can't cope with the world. And it's all too much for us, and that, and that we can't cope with other people. It just seems like. These people set themselves up as experts on human nature. They don't know the first thing about people. And you can't miss the fact that we just take a delight in, in anonymous crowds. And as for coping yes, with... Yes, as you say somewhere in the book, you know, hundreds of thousands of people buy tickets for Glastonbury before the headline is really Yeah, and at two, £230 a pop before they even know who's playing. It, and it's sort of... And I'll make, I'm not sure that anonymous crowds are that new either. And, and Louise Barrett, in, in her book Beyond the Brain, says, but, you know, who invented those things? We invented those things. And they... And we're stimulated by, by new things. Darwin says, because um, there is in the mind of man a, a, a love for slight novelty in all things. And so you totally miss that, that idea of us as sort of curious, fascinated by each other. And I mentioned, why are there all those rules against miscegenation? You know, because, actually, sorry, that was in, my, in the, the book about evolution when Jared Diamond says, you know, xenophobia is, you know, hardwired into us. Well... What about people's curiosity and delight in strangers? You know, and how every culture has to do something about the young people's wanderlust. You want to go and spend 
find out about these people who you've always been warned yes, against. Yes, the Amish send you away to come back, don't they? And there's uh, right, you know, I, all those sort of I, I didn't cultures know. and rituals. All uh, Australians uh, go walk about, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, I didn't know about the Amish. I, I was when I was on an American book tour. I was wearing a black frock coat with blue trousers, and I was on a on a train, and there was a sort of stop at you know, I don't know, um, Kalamazoo, just to get, let you stretch your legs, and then two colleges up carries up was the Amish and they were wearing frock coats and blue trousers they were looking at me as if I was some breakaway sect I just didn't have the chin beard you know but I managed to convince a woman from Minnesota that I said yeah that brethren won't talk to me because I you know I I differ from them on on, on certain key principles of dogma (laughs) this this notion of hardwiring as well as one that seems to be kind of it's very very persistent yeah but I mean I think you your position would be more that you know, neuroplasticity is the thing, and that we our brains change. Mm, that's right, and um, and there's been lots of studies about that, and it's so persistent the the hardwiring metaphor that people will not let the fact that it's contradicted by all the by so much recent science sort of get in the way of way of it, like a dog and a bone. That the brain is turns out to be very much more plastic than we thought, but it's it's the there's such a lot of uh, intellectual capital invested in the the idea that the brain is a type of computer, which I think is a terribly demoralising and dehumanising idea. And again, I don't think there's but there's a sort of demoralising idea at the other end of it, isn't there? That someone like Nicholas Carr, who writes all about neuroplasticity, says, you know, the internet's making us stupid because you know we're, our brains kind of rewire themselves in response to continuous partial attention, and we suddenly, mm. you know, we cease to be able to learn to read deeply or think deeply do you i mean do you subscribe to any of that end of things no because i think there's there are sort of you've got biological constraints you know there's that, that thing sort of up to a point all sorts of things we do can make us more stupid and there's other things that can make us brighter and then and then there's there's a sort of there's always a, a multiplicity of weakly acting causal pathways there's never this creates that so i think that's the what, what saves us from those sort of more say linear explanations one of the things i think you you seem to be very strong kind of embedding the mind back in the body and saying you know this is i mean there's a, there's a fascinating experiment you describe actually about people who've got one hemisphere shot yeah, yeah, and they can draw half a picture but then you squirt them in the ear with some cold water and they can draw the whole <laughs> picture I mean, it's extraordinary this this the bisiak and Uzzati's experiment in milan in the 70s and I, I was just sort of thinking out loud, and so I didn't, I didn't know. So, I, but I was keen to see that the, the, the brain has evolved to sort of serve movement, that the as a sort of sensory motor function that put the brain back in the body, but also in the living world and in the world that we make between us. I mean, um, Descartes' English contemporary, Thomas, Sir Thomas Brown, said, "Thus is man that great and true amphibian, whose nature is." disposed to live not only like other creatures in diverse elements but in divided and distinguished worlds which is always taken to be well you you dualist but actually it's true really. we live in biology and we live in culture and these two these two things are, are sort of both both important it's to sort of see that we we're part of a sort of community of minds and so i think that getting the biology back into the story and getting the outside world back into the story as opposed to this sort of the revival of solipsism seemed worthwhile to do and and also well, I thought I think, oh, you know, every now and then when I read someone who sort of believes in the existence of the outside world or that we are biological creatures, I think, oh, thank goodness, you know. Where do you stand on someone like Daniel Dennett, who sort of shares, I think, to some extent, your materialism and your idea that, you know, the sort of Descartes mind-body divide isn't isn't one that can be sort of maintained, but he's got a he's got a very sort of mechanistic. Yeah. You know, I mean, he more or less says that even you know our consciousness has been created by a sort of algorithmic process. Yeah, that seems to be to me to hopelessly reductive, and 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 sort of that's part of that 
I mean, uh, David Eagleman says, you know, with we talk about uploading consciousness. He says with a powerful enough computers simulating our our brain's interactions, we could upload, we could exist digitally, escaping the biological wetware from which we've arisen. Well, that's moonshine. And that's a very old idea with roots in Pythagoras and Plato and the idea of, you know, that beyond bodily sin and physical decay lies a shimmering non-physical realm to which the enlightened will be uplifted. And, but we are not such simplistic creatures. And and again, I think, Danny, it's it's a very rugged, macho, Thing and you, it's a very safe space to, to be in this sort of dogmatic reductivism, but it's looking less and less scientific, and it's more and more contradicted by more and more evidence. Just from my tiny, tiny cell scrapings of the of the belly of this whale of evidence, but you know, uh, people who know more seem to say the same thing too. So, Rob, if there's one one thought you'd like to leave us with as a sort of encouragement, what what would that be? Oh man, alive! What a question to hit me with. Sorry. One, one, <laughs> One thought, which is to is to eschew prophets will come along and tell you that things can be solved by just one thought. <laughs> Excellent. Robin Newman, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for having me.